Welcome to the Padres Chair, an insightful commentary on current reality, presented by Dr. Tim Schroeder. Sometimes controversial, always reflective, the Padres Chair will consistently nudge you to consider current reality through the lens of truth contained in the Holy Scriptures, and will always move toward the piercing two-word question, so what? Here's Tim with today's topic. Thanks for joining me as we take a glance at life from the Padres chair. This four-episode series is going to address the fact that there are a few critical intersections in life which exert a disproportionate influence on our journey. Navigate these intersections well, and the result will almost always be increased growth and maturity. Navigate these ones poorly, and the damage can be quite significant. Now, although these intersections are personal and are unique for each of us, their essential makeup has remained pretty much the same and has been constant from the beginning of time. There really isn't much new under the sun. Now, the good news about that is that we don't have to start from scratch every time we come to one of these junctions. Since they've been around in one form or another for such a long time, others have visited them too. And it consequently should come as no surprise that even the Bible has addressed them with insight that helps us navigate them productively. Of course, the bad news is that since they've been around for so long, it's not likely they'll disappear anytime soon. We're going to continue to have to battle them almost every day. Now, my hope and prayer is that by exploring these critical intersections thoughtfully and with the perspective provided by the Holy Scriptures, our exploration will be helpful and encouraging to you and to those you love. I mentioned we're going to explore four critical junctions in this series. The intersection where telling the truth is risky. The junction where dreams and reality clash. Those times when losses threaten to define you. And those cross streets where routine is shattered and one is forced to learn new patterns, such as during COVID-19. So we're going to have lots to talk about, and I hope you'll stay with me for all four episodes. Today's junction is one we all know extremely well. Those times when telling the truth is risky. Let me start with a rather bold claim. Today's cultural climate in Canada is not only truth-averse. Worse than that, it is truth-punishing. We live in a climate that has developed a severe allergy to honest communication. As Canadians, we often boast that we are bilingual. I think there's a third language that dominates the landscape. It's the language of spin. We have become skillfully adept at putting out germs of truth, which we then slant or spin in whatever direction we desire. Forthrightness has disappeared. Political correctness and what has come to be known as the cancel culture has all but disallowed the ability to honestly yet respectfully state one's position if it disagrees with popularly held viewpoints. Mature conversations between people who strongly disagree with each other are extremely rare. And the bottom line is that this allergy has robbed us of the benefit of healthy, vigorous dialogue and debate. Offering an alternative position to what is the currently viewed politically correct stance often results in being ruthlessly shamed and ridiculed without any possibility of explanation. 
Ours is a climate of hypersensitivity to offense. Of course, it, it doesn't help that some who do, quote, tell the truth, do so in an offensive, disrespectful, and demeaning manner. There's no defense for that. However, the loss of honest, respectful debate has impoverished us all. A short time ago, the poignancy of the situation grabbed my attention as I was waiting in line to enter a store. It took the form of a rather provocative message on the T-shirt worn by the gentleman behind me. Now, I'm not sure it made any difference that he faced the added challenge of being confined to a wheelchair, but in my mind, that added even more weight to the message on his shirt. But the inscription on his shirt simply said this, Just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Yeah, a lot of food for thought on that t-shirt. Some time ago, I took a course on how to hold crucial conversations. It was all about learning how to communicate risky truth. And our trainer offered his assessment of our cultural aversion to truth by suggesting this question be put on the table prior to any high-risk conversation. He said it should be asked, is there any way, is there any way at all, treating you with full respect, treating you graciously, lovingly, and with dignity, is there any way that I can disagree with you and your position without being labeled as bigoted, mean-spirited, racist, homophobic, intolerant, prejudiced, or whatever label fits that conversation? If the answer to that question is no, and there's no room for disagreement, then unfortunately there's little point having the conversation. And we all lose. We lose the richness of debate. We lose thoughtful disagreement. We lose diversity. We lose the ability to think beyond current acceptable patterns of thinking. Our cancel culture attempts to force agreement on issues for which there are legitimate diverse opinions. And instead of the goal being respect and dignity, we've attempted to force unanimity of thought. Now, this might be a good time to recall that I started out suggesting that there's really not much new under the sun. While we might think our truth-averse culture is like nothing that's ever existed, we fool ourselves. Back in the first century, a guy that we've come to know as St. Paul wrote a, a letter to a group of Christians living in the city of Ephesus. And in his letter, he suggested that being blown around by the winds of whatever popular thought emerged day to day was actually a sign of immaturity, and that the antidote to that was learning to do something radical. He put it this way, learning to speak the truth in love. In the Crucial Conversations training I took 20 centuries later, social scientist Joseph Grenny took exactly that same principle, and he called it the fool's choice. The fool's choice he defined as the belief that, that I have to choose between truth and love, that I have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend, choose between speaking truth and maybe keeping my job. And it's a faulty dichotomy. Granny's contention is that there is a way to be completely candid and completely respectful simultaneously. And I'm suggesting that learning to do that in the risky intersections of life 
is one of the greatest growth moments we have. So, for the next few minutes, I want us to look at one sample of someone who knew how to tell the truth well in a high-risk situation and just see if perhaps there's something we can mine from it for our situations. Here's the setting. The date is somewhere around 980 B.C. I told you there's nothing new under the sun. This is more than 3,000 years ago. Setting? The king of Israel, Israel's most famous king, was a guy named David. He did more for Israel than anyone in their history. The time of year was springtime. It was the time that kings would typically go to war and expand their territory. But this particular spring, David unexplainably chose to stay home. He sent his generals, he sent his army out to war, but he stayed home. One afternoon, David was lounging around, and after an afternoon nap, I'm not making this up, it's in the Bible, he's up on the rooftop terrace of the palace, and he looks down into the courtyard of his neighbor, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Anyone got any idea where this story is heading? Of course you do. He, he sends a messenger to find out who she is, and the report comes back. Her name is Bathsheba, and she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. End of story, right? It should have been. At least for anyone who's ever heard of the Seventh Commandment, that's the one about adultery. But David messed up. He sent for her, slept with her, and 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us that she conceived and sent word to David saying, Guess what, Dave? I'm pregnant. Big problem. You see, Uriah, her husband, wasn't home. He was one of David's loyal soldiers, and he was out fighting on David's behalf, so everyone would know the baby wasn't Uriah's. So David concocts a cover-up scheme. I'm not going to go into all of the details because they're not germane to this part of the story, but bottom line, the cover-up didn't work. And David ends up having Uriah killed, and he brings Bathsheba into the palace, and he marries her. That's the background. Now, just one more very important detail. Chapter 11, verse 27 says, And the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12. The Lord sent a guy named Nathan to David to confront him about what he'd done. How would you like that assignment? Go talk to the most powerful man in the kingdom about the sin in his life. I'm actually going to read the account of that conversation in its entirety because it is packed full of insight as to how to navigate this kind of conversation, this kind of risky intersection. Here goes. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 12 in the Older Testament of the Bible. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. 
David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, And as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He's got to pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. If this was a movie, there'd be nothing but deafening silence. To call this a critical intersection hardly does it justice. Now, let me press pause for a moment. I doubt that you'll have to confront a king this week about his bad behavior. Chances are you won't be dealing with adultery that results in murder. But you very likely will encounter an intersection almost as risky for you. You may need to have a high-risk conversation with your spouse. You may need to speak up about something your boss is not going to like. You may need to take a politically unpopular position on your campus or in your social group. You see, with, with regularity, we all encounter any number of intersections where speaking truth is risky. And so let me suggest that the approach of Nathan contains a number of helpful insights Insights which I'm going to pose in the form of questions to ask yourself each time you approach one of these high-risk intersections. Questions which will help you conduct your conversation better. And you don't want to skip over any one of them before speaking up. Here they are. Question number one. What's the real issue that needs to be addressed? What's ultimately at stake in your intersection? Because, you know, there's almost always more going on than first meets the eye. Just stay with me on this. David was only the second king in Israel's history. And it was never God's intent for Israel to have a king. God was going to be their king. But they insisted, so God gave in and let them have first Saul, David's predecessor, and then David. But God gave them some very clear instructions as to how these kings were to behave. You find those in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now, the bottom line was that certain behavior of the kings was going to result in certain consequences, not just for the king, but for the whole nation. If the king behaved honorably, if the king was honest, if the king followed God, if the king was compassionate, if the king was trustworthy, the whole nation would benefit. You see, in that era, the king was not only a political or a military leader, he was also their spiritual leader. He influenced everything in the land. So his behavior was paramount. And here's David, the leader of the nation, up to his ears in lust and adultery and murder and cover-up. And whether that got handled well is about a lot more than just David's life. The whole kingdom was at stake. Don't miss that. Critical intersections almost always involve more than just the one or two people in them. See, when someone in a small group violates trust, it's not just a little bit of gossip. The trust of the community gets threatened. The way someone who is socially awkward gets coached is about more than just their hygiene. Their whole sense of belonging and acceptance is hanging in the balance. 
An insensitive or hypercritical parent is about more than just a few little hurt feelings. A teenager's identity is being formed. It, it always pays before having the conversation to roll back the surface layer and wonder about the deeper issues and make sure they get addressed. Several years ago, shortly after my parents celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary, my mother somehow lost her wedding ring. It wasn't that valuable, and she was pretty much bedridden at that point, so none of us kids gave it a whole lot of thought. Then my dad announced to me one day that he was going out to buy her a new ring. My dad was well into his 90s, my mom was bedridden, and so I thought perhaps I should offer some guidance to my dad about not bothering going out and paying a high price for a ring. I mean, how important could it be? Fortunately, before I could open my mouth in that intersection, my dad opened his, and it became crystal clear that there was something a lot more important going on than the ring. You see, to my mom and dad, that ring was a symbol of promises they'd made 70 years before. Promises that for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death us do part, he was going to stay by her side. I discovered as he talked, it wasn't about a ring at all. It was all about his commitment to be there till she died. And he was. And I've rarely been more happy that I kept my mouth shut. What's my point? A critical factor in speaking the truth well is to know before you speak what it is you're talking about, to make sure you understand what's really at stake. Second question. Do I have the courage to tell the whole truth? The whole truth. To quote an old friend, most of us are real good with about 90% of the truth. It's the last 10% that remains unspoken. How often have you asked a friend who perhaps had previously confided in you that she needed to have a hard talk with her husband or boss or friend, and then you ask her, hey, did you have the talk? And, and the answer you get back is, well, sort of, or mostly. The most common scenario is that we speak all around the truth, but lack the courage to tell it all. There's some details in this story that can't possibly be overstated. In chapter 11, verse 5, the, the woman, Bathsheba, conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Don't, don't read that one too quickly. This is the wife of a rank-and-file soldier speaking to the king of Israel. And she's basically saying, there's a problem and you need to face it. I don't think we appreciate how much courage it took in that culture where women did not have position, they did not have power, for Bathsheba to speak up and to speak truth to David. Then, chapter 12, verse 7, after masterfully telling David that parable about the rich man, the poor man, and the little family sheep, Nathan looked the king of Israel right in the eye and said, David, you're that man. There's no wiggle room. There's no fuzz. 100% truth. And then, starting from that point, Nathan proceeds to leave no stone unturned. By the time he was done, everything was on top of the table. Just, just do yourself a favor and, and read verses 7 to 12. Read them line for line, because Nathan itemizes every single inch of David's guilt. 
And just in case the point was missed, verse 14, he says, David, in what you did, you not only killed Uriah, you not only hurt Bathsheba, but you showed contempt for the Lord. Some old translations read, you gave occasion for all the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Now, some might think rooting out every last inch of an issue is cruel. Let me tell you what's really cruel. It's leaving the last two or three percent unaddressed so that it stays in there festering, and the real issue never gets fully resolved. I was recently in a meeting where a, a really wise leader said to me at the end, he said, Tim, is there anything else you need to say? Is there anything remaining unsaid that needs to be put on the table? Boy, do we need more of that. In, in this age of COVID, there's hardly a person who has not been coached on how to wash their hands. And we've seen picture after picture on TV of special lights showing how much we typically miss when we do our haphazard hand washing and and we can see all of the germs that remain. And so we've all been coached, you know, sing happy birthday twice, scrub every nook and cranny, get every last germ for the sake of your health. Not bad advice. Have you got that kind of courage when it comes to truth? We're not talking about meanness. We're not talking about tactlessness. We're talking about respectful, total honesty. Have I got the courage to tell the whole truth? All right, one final question to ask yourself as you approach this high-risk intersection. Am I willing to learn the skill of telling the truth well? And telling the truth well is a learned skill. And we can all learn it. And Nathan was a master. I'm not going to reread the account, but but he did his job so well that verse 5 tells us that when, when he was finished talking, David burned with anger at the description of his own behavior. That didn't just happen. Nathan planned it. He put some effort into it. He didn't just burst into David's palace and blow off steam. He had a clearly thought through approach, and he told the truth in a way that we still admire some 3,000 years later. I'm not doing this to sell books for anyone, but I really challenge you, go online, go into any bookstore. There are numbers of great books that are dedicated to helping us get better at telling high-risk truth. Crucial Conversations is one. Fierce Conversations is another. Difficult Conversations is a third. They're all on my bookshelf. And I need to constantly pay attention to what they can teach me. Because telling the truth in this time, in this climate we live in in Canada today, is one of the highest risk, yet highest yield intersections of all. God bless you as you navigate this and many more of the critical junctions we face together. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Padres Chair. Bookmark the site for future episodes, and if you find The Padres Chair helpful, pass it on to those around you.